Hello and welcome to another edition of Turn Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, not one, but two incredible guests, two people that I love and respect so deeply from the group The Hallucination, Bear Witness, and Tim Toolman Hill. And they have a brand new record coming out tomorrow when you're listening to this, it drops live called one more Saturday night. And it's, it's like my record of the year. This thing is incredible. Check it out when it drops more on all this in one second. But first, if you would like to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turn at a punk podcast at gmail.com. That is where my, my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham. I didn't need his help with this one, but my God, Tristan, thank you for all the work you do for this show. Uh, he also runs an Instagram page and a Facebook page for the show as well, and you can get messages to the show that way. If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is just by telling all your friends about it, letting everyone know that you know that you enjoy this podcast, and we have all sorts of guests on it, we talk about punk and music, and have a good time. Uh, you can also support it, though, by heading uh, to where you're listening to it, and rating it and subscribing it, and furthermore, if you want to support it, you can head over to patreon.com slash punk. And check out some of the stuff we do there and support it over on that thing. And thank you, thank you deeply to everyone that does do that. It's unbelievably appreciated. Uh, and speaking of support, this show would not be possible with the kind, loving support of the fine folks at Vans who came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, just do what you do, but but just don't do it in your own pocket. And they helped me cover the cost of this thing, which is, there are costs, weirdly. And when you put on more episodes, there's even more costs. Who, who would have thought that would happen? But thank you to them for doing that. And I cannot wait Till uh, I get to see everyone there again at a house of vans or chill out. Be, I, I'm really looking forward to that. Oh, one day, one day we'll get the back there. Uh, it, it, I play in a band. We're called Fucked Up. We are going to be playing some shows with Faith No More, hopefully in September. Uh, we're going to be, uh, I think, four shows in total. You can check out the dates now if you Google Fucked Up Faith No More Tour, they'll all come up for you. We have information over our, our website, fuckedup.cc, I believe. Uh, and we will also be going out into touring in the January months and into the new year. We're going to go to the U.S., we're going to Europe. We've got, we got a lot of dates lined up coming together now. we got, once again, more information at fuckedup.cc because it's the 10th anniversary of our album, David Comes to Life, which has just been reissued by Matador Records, so you can check that out. Over there on their website and order that. And speaking of ordering things, our buddy Scotty Karate at Tank Crimes Records has put out our hour and a half long song, Year of the Horse, on vinyl. And it looks awesome, the package. And you can once again pre-order that over there at Tank Crime, TankCrime.com, TankCrimeRecords.com, Tank Crime. Google once again Tank Crime Records, it'll all come up. That's, that's the thing about the internet, you know? I mean, you just search engine of point of choice. You know, maybe it's Excite, maybe it's uh, Yahoo, maybe you know. There's lots of other search engines out there. I'm sure if you plug it into all of them, it'll come up. I don't know for sure, but I imagine. All right, on to today's show. As I said off the top, today on the show, two of my favorite people in the whole wide world, and two people that I, I talk to probably more than just about anyone outside of my family, from the group, the Hallucination. Bear Witness and Tim Toolman Hill are on the show. And I've been on Bear for years to come on this show. And I've also talked and I've done podcast stuff with Tim. 
So to finally make this all happen and come together here, it's a big thrill for me. Formerly known as A Tribe Called Red, now as the Hallucination. These guys are one of the most important groups to ever emerge out of Canadian music. Uh, they are phenomenal. Sitting in the studio watching them make this record was an unbelievably inspiring experience. Uh, as I said, you know, these are two of my best friends. And so to get a chance to have this conversation with them so you could hear it, it's, one, it's I can't get over saying this. It's a huge thrill for me. Uh, the record is called One More Saturday Night, and it is dropping tomorrow, if you're listening to this thing when it comes out. And if not, it's probably out now. You got to check this thing out. This is my record of the year, for sure. Uh, if you get a chance to see The Hallucination live, you've got to do it. It's an incredible experience. They're going to be going out on tour. Uh, check once again on that thing called the internet for dates because, uh, yeah, Every Time Live is one, it's a show that I never forget. And that's, that's it. I'm going to let you listen to this thing now. I'm sort of rambling so much this week. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Tim Toolman Hill, Bear Witness, The Hallucination on Turned Out a Punk. Tim and Bear, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, no. Good to be here, man. Thank you for asking us, man. This is going to be awesome. It's really weird to talk to you guys like this. Like, it feels way, uh, as I was just telling you guys, like, I don't know if I've been more nervous, excited for an episode since my parents came on. Like, I feel like I know you guys. Uh, well, I don't know you guys. And that's why the reason I want to do this episode with you, because I, I want to hear a lot about your history. But I like, you, you're two of my best friends. I've spent hours and hours with you guys like hanging out in the studio or you know tim you and i have traveled places together like it just feels like your family and so I'm, I'm just so happy you could finally be here on the show with me yeah us too it's this is an honor all right well i gotta start this off the way they all start off which is how'd you get into punk and i guess we'll go bear first because i know bear has more of a direct connection to it i think than yourself tim but we'll get to you tim in a second so bear how'd you get into punk well you know uh, getting ready for this last night doing some mental time traveling and i was trying to think of like the first time i ever heard punk or like was introduced to anything that had anything to do with punk um and you know i was like going to tell you the story about my best friend from grade school joel fisher who's really the first person who got me into punk like musically but uh but my story actually with punk goes back a bit further <laughs> really yeah as i was mining my brain last night and i was like how the hell did i forget about pat and kelly so a huge part of my like just development as a as a human uh when i was like uh like 12 years old um i had had this babysitter previous to that named jane and jane worked at a store in kensington like a like a kitsch store uh, yeah. i forget what it's called now um there used to be a lot was, of them in kensington like kind of just like weird cool yeah 50s throwbacky kitschy stuff exactly exactly like plastic lobsters and yeah. postcards and stuff and and jane was was you know she was a she was a kensington punk you know she had the I remember first person I ever knew who had an asymmetrical haircut and she had a little bit one, one side undercut and, you know, purple and green hair and all that kind of stuff going on. Um, so after she had been my babysitter, she eventually bought that store. 
and uh, she moved it to Queen West, uh, just past Bathurst. And I moved into that neighborhood when I was like 12. Uh, so yeah, when, when she owned the store there, like I, I guess I was just wandering around the area one day and walked in because uh, I had found Jane again after a couple of years. And I remember the store then had changed a bit now when it was in her possession and it had, uh, they sold a lot of t-shirts. Mm -hmm. I remember a lot of white on black t-shirts. Uh, my favorite t-shirt for a long time was when I got there, which was like a Jack Nicholson, like dot picture t-shirt. Is it where he's coming through the door from the shining? Uh, it was actually, you know, the face when he's like, he's like down like this. Okay. Looking. Yeah. It was like, it was a really creepy shirt, but, uh, anyway, so I started hanging around her store and, you know, she had a couple of video games in the back and stuff. And, uh, and she had these two really close friends named Pat and Kelly. And I, I mean, I think everybody was about like 20, 21 and mm -hmm. I was like 11, 12 kind of age. And that became my like posse and <laughs> Pat and Kelly, they were a couple and, uh, they were the ones who got me into role-playing games, got me into Warhammer, uh, and actually, and sword fighting. Like, I, they, we were part of a medieval guild, so, like, Kelly had, like, uh, had, like, a little anvil in his apartment, and, like, helmets and, and armor, and he taught me how to sword fight. And, yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so, they, they, I mean, they were punks. Yeah, I didn't so much introduce me to the music, but definitely they introduced me to a lot of stuff, and that is still like key in my life now. That's wild. They must have been super early into Warhammer 40k. Yeah, yeah. This is like '89. Yeah. So Blood Bowl would have happened. And stuff, and I... Yeah, yeah. It was just that's like the Warhammer store in Toronto opened like a year or so after I had started getting into into it with them. There also there was like there was like a Warhammer role playing game like like Dungeons and Dragons style mm -hmm. role playing game. Mm -hmm. I remember playing with them and yeah, saw Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles the first time I stayed out after ten o'clock and scared my mother. <laughs> but it was just this yeah it was this group of like early twenties Queen Street punks who took in this weird eleven twelve year old kid and showed him. A whole new world. We've talked about it on the show. It's come on the show before, but like the idea of like, uh, like a child hanging out with adults is like something that you know it, it obviously can go horribly wrong too. But like in punk rock, it's something that just is weirdly part of it, you know. But like now, as a parent to a twelve-year-old child, if he came home one day and said, "I met these punk kids. <laughs> They're teaching me how to sword fight, and I'm going <laughs> to stay up past curfew tonight." I would be like, there's no way you're ever leaving this place again. <laughs> <laughs> like we're, I'm now at the point where we have to talk about going on the subway and I'm like, he's 12 going on the subway. And I'm like, I was going on the subway at nine. I can't believe it's taken this long, but it just feels, I don't know. Like we like, and I guess it's this, like this with every generation, but it just feels like there was a lot more freedom for us and things were a lot scarier back on queen street west then too like you yeah. know further west than bathurst obviously but like it got pretty hairy queen west west yeah i mean but i mean back then that was queen west west really like yeah anything anything past bathurst you're in a really different world a totally different world <laughs> yeah <laughs> the generator i guess when the generator opened up that's when that kind of opened up that into queen street right um what about you tim do you ever play role-playing games 
<laughs> um, I mean, aside from like you know, on on uh on video games, you know, that would be it. But um, I, you know what? I, I grew up on on the res, so mm. like I didn't get a chance to, you know, um, there were small communities, but like there was people playing like. You know, there was a part or on second line or something on my reserve. There was people that were playing Magic card, you know, Magic. Yeah. Um, D and D two down there, um, but I just never really got into it. Like I just there was it was not enough exposure. I think if I got into it when I was younger, I probably would have been one of those guys for sure. Yeah. Because I was into everything that was really against the norm. I feel where I come from. I'm. The, I mean, I'm a guy that makes beats. And there's like maybe a handful that do, you know what I mean? Out of like 15,000 people. So it's like, even our community for, for that is like very small. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when did you first hear the word punk? Do you remember? That's Tim, I mean, I mean. Oh, Tim. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know what? It, it kind of goes back to my time when I started going to Toronto. When I start, um, because when I was making beats, people were just like, "Hey, you got to go to Toronto to, to uh, if you want to get any kind of exposure, it's not going to happen here." Mm. So that's where I would go down there, and um, so I would hang it out with the with a lot of friends that I would make music with, and they would introduce me to their individual spaces, and um, I got a chance to go to at the last phase of the HMV in the basement where all the hip hop records were. Yeah. And, um, but just being in the city and noticing like totally like culture shock, you know, I'm seeing different fractions or factions and, and different kinds of, uh, of, of, uh, culture all kind of in this place. I mean, like it was kind of the first time I ever heard someone speak Patois. So it was kind of like, you know, like hanging out with Jamaicans or like, um, just being exposed to that, to, to the city. And I think it was right around when I was about night 18 that punk really came into my life like that, I guess. Just by being in the city, it was it was it was around. It was accessible. It wasn't like on TV, like you know, you would see things and um they seem so far away. But in the city, it made all of those things really real. Like we were talking about yesterday how Electric Circus was just like a big dance thing that happened in Toronto, but like I only seen it on TV. I never got to see it like what it actually looks like in person, or I never got to do Speaker's Corner or anything like that. But those things are like, because they were on the TV, they were really big things to me. So when yeah. I came to the city, it was like, I'm going to take in everything. Yeah. Was much music still going at that point? Like, you know, obviously it was still going like into the 2000s but like were there any sort of semblance of the speaker's corner was the speaker's corner still there or like were they still doing stuff on the ground floor you mean i missed it i missed yeah. it probably by i think i think they might have probably stopped in the very early 2000s if anything because like yeah. when i was going there in like the 2004 5 that's when uh or no probably like yeah 2003 4 like that's i they weren't around then it's funny when you think about like Speaker's Corner and just how that pre-foretells like YouTube and just it's like such a intuitive idea, but it's it's just it's amazing how you know how it took off, you know? Like I, I would sit there and watch just random strangers yell all afternoon when they used to show that on TV. For sure. It it would be definitely one of those things that I like watching 
at night when it would come on, you know, just for like a holy, like, you know, like this is, uh, these are the characters that are in Toronto. When I started Much Music, there's a, there's a story that at the holiday party, they used to show the too hot for TV speakers corner video that the editors would cut together. Where did you get kind of get into music from? Like, do you remember the first stuff you got into as far as music? Did you grow up with a lot of music in your house? Tim? Uh, for me, um, no. Um, yeah. Soul funk. Um, my, my uncles were like, uh, my uncle was in a soul funk band. So like he introduced me to a lot of like band stuff. So like uh, he introduced me to Prince and Michael <laughs> and like, but also like ZZ Top and like Tower Power, um, these really kind of like really soulful, I guess, um, rhythm-esque bands. Um, but they also like, you know, like, yeah, like rock stuff. Like he, he had a, a family full of kids. So he had like uh, three sons and they were like my older brothers and they were each like a, a member of the band. Someone was a drummer, bass player and guitar player. So each of them would teach me about music and the music that they were into. Yeah, and it was kind of like a, a really, that was probably my first, uh, I guess, education, musical education experience. But when it comes to punk, like I had no idea what that was aside if I seen it on a movie or something like that. Like I, this is so, so awful, but like it would be like Cannibal Corpse in uh, Ace Ventura. Ace Ventura, yeah. Yeah, like yeah. stuff like that. Like, you know, like that's a thing. Like, I, even though it's Six Nations only like an hour and a half away, there was out, there was uh, it, this sense of isolation mm-hmm. that you know that you know, it's just like you don't, you know, like not, not that you don't go out it, but like I just, it was only about my community. So, whenever, first- whatever, we, so whatever we can get is, is, uh, is the, what I'd be exposed to. When did you first hear uh, like sort of hip hop? Do you remember first coming expo- across that? Was it like on Much Music as well or something? No, I heard I heard hip hop uh, from my cousin that lived in the states. He brought over uh, a Run DMC CD. Amazing. And, and then like he's like, you gotta you gotta check this out. And I just got a CD player. I was probably like thirteen. It was the ones that if you moved it just a little bit, it would skip. <laughs> skip like <You> know? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that and then I just it just snowballed from there. I used to start. He would give me like the moment that I found out that how hip hop was was recorded. I it started my brains turning. Like uh, my my you know my brains are turning. Uh, there was an album. <laughs> it was Puff Daddy in the family, but there was a song that he samples Bowie, I think, and with Mace. And on the CD that my cousin gave me, he's like, "You can have this CD. I I bought this and I didn't mean to buy it." And I realized it only had the clean version on it, but he had the clean version and the acapella and the instrumental. And to me, it really clicked a lot of things in my head. And I was like, ah, that's what you need to put a song together. And then I just started going from there. How about you, Bear? Did you, well, what kind of music did you grow up around the house with? Uh, all kinds of stuff. I know my dad, my dad was like a big uh, jazz and funk fan. Uh, so I remember like he, he was uh, really into uh, Youssef Latif. Uh, and he loves like uh, Earth, Wind and Fire, stuff like that. 
Um, but I grew up with that. Like, what I remember like hearing from music the most, though, was just the radio, driving and hearing the radio. Like, I, one of my earliest memories of driving around Buffalo in the car and hearing uh, Johnny Cash for the first time, Ring of Fire on the radio. And just like, for some reason, I would like, I, that is burnt into my brain. Like the first time I heard Ring of Fire in the car. And uh, yeah, I have a lot of like weird, like personal times with music from being a really little kid. Like I was just like, I remember just being really obsessed with music and like picking out the different parts in music and playing things back in, like I, I had a little like, uh, you know, those little flat black tape decks. Yeah, yeah. Like, like six double A batteries and had a record button. Yeah, I remember like playing back. Like uh, I had a um, Muppets tape that I used to play the intro back over and over again. It was uh, the uh, the Rainbow Connection. That's by and, Paul Williams, I think, too. Oh yeah, yeah. Like one of my favorite songwriters ever. Nice. Yeah, funky dude. Uh, my dad actually kept that tape and gave it to me recently. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I recorded myself on the beginning of it, <laughs> like over top, so you get over top of it, or yeah, yeah. I think just talking, but uh, yeah, like lots of like I have like a lot of memories of just kind of like being alone. I got a Walkman really early on. I had one of those Walkmans that had the strap. Mm. And the yellow, the yellow earphone, like the the fuzzy yellow earphones with the little wire headpiece. Uh, there's actually a great photograph my dad has. I got to get another copy of it, and it's me wearing my strapped-on Walkman and with uh, with my uh, Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov uh, <laughs> <laughs> LJNs uh very proudly but yeah like so that that walkman went everywhere with me when i was like five six years old and uh way back tape deck i was talking about that's even younger that was in buffalo when i was like three or four but yeah once i got that walkman i just i took music with me everywhere and it was just i had by like by that point i was listening to my own music already um but i got exposed to a lot of stuff because my family's in the arts so mm -hmm. i was going to festivals and stuff from a really young age when I was super young, we used to go to, even when we lived in Buffalo, we'd come up to Canada to go to Peterborough. There was an indigenous people's festival that happened in Peterborough twice, in the, once in the late seventies and once in the early eighties. And that was like people from every, like, you know, from across, indigenous people from across the world. So getting to see performances by, uh, you know, seeing uh, Australian indigenous people doing kangaroo dance and people from, uh, Inuits from Greenland who had come to perform and like these were all things like I was seeing when I was like four and five years old. That's amazing. Um, you know, I saw Nusrat Ali Khan play in a tent on, in Harborfront, you know, less than 200 people and like shit like, like, you know, it was like I had I had all like, you know, being from being from an arts family, I had this shit coming from every angle. But the stuff that I decided to really lay into was music. Yeah. What about what was your first concert? Do you remember? Uh, yeah, I mean, it depends what you want to call first concert because, like, I you know was going to festivals and stuff, and well, I mean, like the first thing you kind of wanted to go to, uh, Jackson Five reunion tour for my seventh birthday. Damn, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> but but this is why I also say like because then there's the first concert I took myself to, 
which what was that was one? A really big deal. That was uh, the that was um, porno for pyros. Yeah, and and the flaming lips opened. Was that the concert hall? Yeah. Oh, that would be insane. I remember hearing about that on the radio, but I was I couldn't go. How, how old were you? Uh, I was fifteen. I was actually living on Six Nations at the time, Crazy. and I took the bus in by myself and went wow. to the show. By all myself. by yourself? All by myself. Oh, yeah. that's. <laughs> I, I I did that. I went to one. I've been at a couple shows all by myself, and there's something there's something amazing about going all by yourself because you're forced forced to focus on the performance and there's nothing to distract you but it also makes you realize how wildly long all these concerts are <laughs> you're just sitting there with nothing to do and that's before cell phones right and that's before yeah. you know i i did have a cd player that i was careful not to skip as i was watching the bands in between you know but <laughs> it was, is you know what was your first band pardon me what was your first band that you went that you took yourself to see the first one of uh, the first one i took myself to see was oh it would have been something at the horseshoe and it would have been because like I, I started doing a radio show uh with the guy that owned the horseshoe and so i could go even though i was underage and the deal was i couldn't go onto the floor but i could stand at backstage and kind of watch the shows backstage so it might have been the rolling stones when the rolling stones played there ah, <laughs> but like cool. but i saw elliot smith play there by myself i saw Saw Elliot Smith a couple times by myself, saw Smog by myself, saw Ben Lee one time by myself. But yeah, it's a very solitary experience. You know. What was your first show, Tim? Um my mom doesn't know this. Oh. Uh, but <laughs> um I went to the Up and Smoke tour. Whoa! <laughs> That's awesome. It was on my birthday on July 4th. I had to tell, because usually, like, you know, I'm I'm 16. My my mom is like uh <laughs> like you know how you gotta have your birthday and you know do you want to go to because uh, we usually went to go to the states to go for fire watch fireworks on my birthday because mm -hmm. on july 4th so yeah and then um yeah the, that year i declined she probably took it as like teenage stuff you know like i oh, was just being rebellious or whatever no and then i was like all right i'm gonna go hang out at my friends and then uh yeah i i took myself and a date to uh yeah the open smoke tour and at the amphitheater and it was so crazy like i got to see dre eminem snoop exhibit um west side connection uh, nate dog like they were all the whole entire west coast at the time popping i got the chance to uh go check it out and i remember that being like a pivotal point where i was kind of like i want to make I like that's the kind of beats I started making at first. It's like these West Coast inspired sounds. So I really idolized Dre. And so uh, that was like a such a moment for me. Yeah. And that 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 also that that show there at that time in Toronto too would have probably been not as packed as it should have been. You know, I imagine all the dates in the States would have been way bigger than it would have been up here. It was it was scary because like I at that was like my first trip. And I didn't even go, that's not even in Toronto, but like, it was like one of my first trips ever to go into Toronto, but yeah. like someone got shot and got killed there too. Like that happened. Oh shit. Yeah. That is that there. show. Yeah. I so it was just like, it was madness. The whole thing from start to finish, it was just like felt so many like ups and downs and yeah. That's also wild. like, 
<laughs> I mean, my uncles like always like to smoke weed and stuff, but like that was like, yeah, another experience where I just all the weed was was being smoked. And it's an amphitheater, so it's like it's open, but it's still it's just sitting there. <laughs> it's there. Just the haze. Yeah, no, it was awesome. It was probably one of the best. It really set the bar for rap performances. So every time I go see a rapper nowadays, it's kind of like a so <laughs> which which amphitheater was that at? Molson. Uh, Molson Amphitheater, right? Yeah, yeah. Molson. Yeah. I used to fill the vending machine there. (laughs) (laughs) That that Michael Jackson show I say at the beginning, that was at the X. Oh, at Exhibition Stadium? Yeah. Oh, that would have been awesome too. Uh, They used to have like wild shows at the X. Oh yeah. I saw Santana and Bob Dylan there in like 90. I saw you guys there twice. (laughs) <laughs> well yeah that's the, the new one <laughs> that, that's always so wild for me playing yeah. in places like the city or nathan phillips square or something because like i grew up going to those places mm-hmm. it's like just always trips me out i i think playing the cne would be something else because you know like i don't know like that is such a you know growing up in toronto right like that's that's the center of joy in the summer once a year meet me here meet me at the x like that was like the center of the summer life was going to the x that for that like you know i remember being sick and vomiting one time and it ruined my whole year i I think think everybody popped at the x (laughs) (laughs) i went to my first concert the first uh punk show i ever went to like was at the x like the the or like not the first but like one of the early early ones i went to was that warp tour that happened there oh yeah the exhibition mm-hmm. like i got so many amazing memories and then of course seeing you guys play there was like like two of the most fun hangs ever like getting to see like my friends play the x it's like it's like so <laughs> monumental it's funny i was just uh you you know you mentioned uh hearing about a show on the radio yeah and that's like I didn't have a TV growing up, and so I was a super like glued to the radio kid. And uh, that um, there was uh, the first time Beck came to Toronto, and they the con- that was at the console too, right? No, no, this was at uh, um, uh, the Rivoli. Oh, okay. So like it was that thing that happened with Beck where he got signed and the and the loser EP came out and he blew up all of a sudden, mm-hmm. but he had already booked small venues. Mm-hmm. So they just decided not to announce the show, and on and on the edge they they announced like in the at like ten o'clock or eleven o'clock in the morning they're like, Beck's playing at at uh, the Rivoli. Go down right now. You can get in line and get tickets. So like I rushed down rushed down to queen street and got in line and uh and saw back to like 150 people in the rivoli it was like spent all day in the front line and then they were like okay here's your ticket come back at showtime and get in line in the alleyway in the back oh i ended up just going around and getting in line because i met a bunch of people in line and we're like yeah we'll just go hang out in line and got to like meet beck as he came in and out for sound check and to do interviews and stuff you know that uh mtv makes me want to smoke crack that he did in front of the eaton center yeah that like i i like talked to him as he went and left and came back to, to the venue to do <laughs> interviews and shit um but i went like that that's another one i went to by myself i actually have uh, not all these memories of going to concerts by myself like when i was under 18. 
It's what you had to do if you didn't have like a group of friends that were into it. Like you kind of yeah. had to make your own way to these things. It's it's also looking back at that time how awesome CFMY was as like a station back then, like this place where they would have wicked guests. I, I met Pansy Division at CFMY. I met I met uh uh, I met um, uh, Jim Carroll at CFMY. Like, it's wild who was there. Oh, yeah. There was uh, a time when I was part of a writing group uh, where they, it was a bunch of other teenagers, and uh, we wrote short stories and recorded them, and then they were broadcast on CFMY. Whoa. Yeah. And it, it was actually one of those things where, you know, like, remember when they got bought out, right? Yeah. And I forget the name uh, of the uh, of the of the DJ, but she she was the one who played our our. We're called the Fabulous Fablers, and she okay. played our fables and during her show. Uh, she quit on air to a whole big like uh, you know this place has been sold. This place has been bought out by a corporation, and it's not what it used to be. And was it Kim Hughes? Yeah, that was, I think that's wow. It. That's wild. That's awesome. She did that. I remember. Because that I would go and hang out there and just punish the shit out of the people working there, like just like spend <laughs> like four hours, like on a Sunday afternoon, just sitting in CFMY, just going through the demo submissions with like Box or all this sort of stuff. And she was always super cool, like just like a, such an awesome person. And like, I don't. It's so funny that that hasn't come back into vogue with radio, like trying to like give a host a show and let them put their personality into it and, and build it up on their personality more. Right. Rather than the like super disc jockey personality. <laughs> yeah. Like, or I went to my friend did a radio show for a while and I went to visit him one time at work and I brought down a record. It was at CFMY. It was like, it was Wade from Lex on fire. And I brought down the working on the radio CFMY record that came out in like 1979. I'm like, yo, we should play this. And he's like, oh, we don't have a turntable. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'm sure I could put it on CD or something. He's like, no, no, it's all on this computer thing. And it's just like a video, a radio flow on a computer now. And it's just, I guess it's where it's at, but it just feels like all the best part about radio was like, yeah, the, the connection you felt with those DJs. Now it's a, spe now it's a specialty when you hear them. When you hear like a, we, we, hear D we heard a DJ mix recently, but it's like, it feels special when you know it's happening in live mm -hmm. time mm -hmm. and it used to be just part of it right like it used to always just be like that's just radio and now it yeah it is like a special thing that's kind of like cut out and isolated and made into to to something else you know type thing so uh when did you first make your first beat tim i was probably about uh i can't really tell the age actually to be honest it was really young um, I, those, the, uh, the uncle that had the three kids that were like my brothers, um, for Christmas one year, they got me a radio with a turntable on top, two tape decks and a CD player in it. And they gave me a bunch of music and records. And one of them was Thriller. And I took the Billie Jean break and I made a, well, I guess I didn't know at the time, but I was like recording it to the tape. And then I would pause the tape, rewind the record, and then hit, you know, I drop, you know, I'd, I'd let go of the record and just get a loop. It wasn't like an imperfect, imperfect loop, but like 
I guess those things were called pause tapes. I didn't know that that was a, a method of making beats, but that's what I did. And I think I was probably maybe like 14, maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, because we always had like a ways to record stuff. Cause like my father is like a, a, like a traditional culture keeper, so to speak. Like he's a guy that just practices our culture and a lot of it is oral tradition. So he would have a tape recorder all the time. So there would be lots of blank tapes around. So I'd like go and take one and just kind of mess with it. And we started getting into the digital stuff and like um, recording onto like to make it into CD. And so we had to like figure out how to do that. So a lot of my musical progressions of getting a computer that can do all that or just figuring it all out was because the basis of it was to preserve, I guess, what my father was doing. So and, that, and that's what you were going to do too, right? Like if, if music didn't become your main thing, you were going to follow following his his footsteps. Yeah, I mean, like at least kind of help out as much as I can. I, I'm really big into restoring, um, preserving, and revitalizing languages, it's mm. particularly ours back home. I've been involved with it since since I was a kid because, like, I was a part of the first immersion school where we got to choose our language instead of um doing french or or spanish so i got to i got to choose cuga and got it right from a kindergarten right right up to uh grade eight so but they told us the teachers the elders would say like you're the one that's going to carry it on so take this serious it's a lot of weight a lot of weight to have on a kid (laughs) but you know but but it, it was awesome like i'm so blessed to be able to have that background and that foundation and a lot of people after or before or after me start coming up and doing the same thing. But yeah, I was super into like, however I can help the teachers. And because I knew computers a lot, like I would Photoshop door books and like um, make them look legit and get them printed. Whereas like, you know, sometimes we would, the way of doing it was to like tape over words. So you get like a, a book with tape with paper over the words and yeah. with the translations on it like yeah i'm just making things look cool and yeah. so when it came to recording and stuff it was the same thing like put things on cd like this is what we're going to be using so like um yeah just getting into recording after that and then i got the recording and then i was like let me learn how to make beats <laughs> and then it just kind of like that that uh that pause tape that i made i found it and i tried to put it in the computer to you know, re- revitalize it, I guess, or to, 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 to restore it. So I recorded into the sound recorder and then there was an option to reverse it on there. So I hit reverse and then I was hooked. I was like, okay, what more can you do with the audio and a computer? And then it just took off, man. So it's really like just figuring it out yourself in for the first little while, you didn't really have anyone to kind of take you through it. Like, this is what you're supposed to do. Not in a sense, but I did have help. There was a guy in our community. It was it's a long story, but basically there I was washing dishes when I was like 16 and on the local radio station I heard a hip hop tune and that never plays on this country mostly blue <laughs> mostly radio station. And so the DJ comes on and was like, that was True Res Professionals, Six Nations Own. And I was like, oh shoot, like there's a Six Nations rap group. Let me find that out. And lucky for me, the guy that made the group is a is a dork, and he like <laughs> designed a web page 
back when web pages were kind of like rare. Yeah. So I went, I went to school, went to the library, found out the information, emailed him, and then he sent me the, the EP. And uh, I asked him how to make beats, and he's like, come see me at my work. So I went to his work, and it was in the downtown of Schwiegen, which is like the main core of Six Nations where I grew up. And um, I walk in, I get to see him, I say, what's up? And then he's in a room with another man and the other guy comes over and he introduces himself. He's like, my name's Kyle, I know your mom. And they went to school together. So they were on my family and her, his family were friends. And uh, he asked me what I was into. And then so I just spent a lot of time with him and he gave me like bootleg copies of this program called Cool Edit version one. And uh, uh, Acid Pro, Sonic Foundry Acid Pro. And that was basically my sequencer. And then uh, he gave me like a, a CD of 99 tracks worth of drums. And then I was like my first, my first go at it. And then I just kind of like, I got to see um, the guy I learned from his name or not learned from, but the guy that uh, it was in the rap group, his name is John. So I looked at John and he showed me what a beat looked like. And then that's all it took. Then I just made really terrible beats for three years in, at home. <laughs> Until I got the hang of it. Acid was like, you know, I don't know a shit ton about it or anything, but I remember Acid was like the program that seemed to be like, like one of those big game changer things. When that came out, like I know everyone I know was getting that program and trying to do something with it. Like it feels like that was like a, must have been like a huge getting on point for like a generation of people that would wind up making music later on. Absolutely. I've, I've, I've uh, growing up in the, in the music industry now, or just being in, in this culture, like I get to meet with a lot of beat makers and I'll, I'll run into a couple that you still use acid pro. Yes, at yeah. Some point. yeah. It's up to like eight now or whatever, but like, uh, but um, yeah, it's like a got totally lucky on meeting with the right people at the right time and for that bootleg software to land in my hand and then <laughs> I was off off to the races yeah no thank 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 goodness for bootleggers because uh <laughs> we might not be able to get any of these program otherwise <laughs> well i wanted to get like an mpc but those things cost like two three thousand dollars yeah you know and i'm like i can't I can't do this. This was like, uh, I was already into um, computer video games and computers anyways, and doing the restor restoring and stuff. So I was just like, this works for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It also feels like that was also a time when the, the, like the, the way people were producing beats seemed to change. Like people wanted stuff that sounded a little more lo-fi or people like were definitely playing with fidelity a lot more. And so you could make something a, a little rougher sounding and it seems like it would be, you know, a little, uh, it would be taken as professional, whereas maybe in a different era, it wouldn't have been. Type yeah. Of, no, well, uh, you, it, it, the, the time when I started making beats, it was like, I don't know if you remember, like track masters, they were like the poppy hip hop producers. Yeah. Those guys were big. Um, yeah. Dr. Dre, you know, chronic album 2001, like that kind of stuff was, was very popular. So you also had all the but that indie rap stuff around then too, right? Was like a lot of like and post Wu Tang, like it feels like raw production was kind of a lot more acceptable. I don't know. It just feels like maybe the technology came at the right time for that, at least. 
Yeah, that was the other thing. I got a computer, so I got to go on online and go on and search on forums and stuff for for hip hop records. And yeah. that that was really big because then you could like I could listen to like stuff that was going on in New York, like like Bootcamp Click is kind of like is the people that took over after Wu Tang, I would say, or around the same time, I guess. Enter the but, stage is one of the best records ever. That's right. Yeah, but like, yeah, that just just being able to like you know have that kind of stuff and then they were the ones that kept it grimy definitely played with fidelity like like uh, definitely played with quality and then i found that the west coast was like super clean mm. and big and like very very flashy yeah 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 it feels like that even when you look at the way punk is taken up um you know like it, it's amazing how geography affects music and just uh mm-hmm. It's, you know, if, and it also feels like now it's kind of different because so many people are exposed to music differently because if it's just, you know, you don't have to get the music that's in your local kind of area and you now just go online and have access to everything. Right. So, but like at a time, yeah, it feels like geography really dictated sounds or, or just, you know, the kind of stuff that would be coming out of there. Uh, Bear, like, where did you kind of go from, you know, meeting these sort of D&D punk people? Like, you spent a lot of time, as you're saying, like, kind of walking around Toronto. But, like, late 80s Toronto was kind of like a hairy place, you know? Like, the Untouchables, the Skinhead Wars. Like, there was, like, it had been a weird place to grow up as a kid, I can imagine. Yeah, no, definitely. Like, I moved to Toronto in 84. uh, And I think by, like, the early 90s, like, Toronto had totally changed. Yeah. The city that I had moved into was definitely, I, I caught the end of, I think, the, the sleepier Toronto in a sense. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, there was definitely massive growing pains uh, in terms of a city becoming a, a bigger city and a more, uh, what do you call it, multicultural city, I guess, you know, like uh, there, there was, uh, yeah, it was, it was definitely hectic, <laughs> you know, growing up in the theater community um it got like the, i remember the people being around me being heavily affected by that and friends of mine who got beat up and shit uh when i mean this is even isn't even you know me being a teenager this is just the, like my mom's friends and stuff and uh but by the time that like, we moved we moved down to like queen's key area mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, when we were living down around that area, is the first time I remember meeting like uh, you know people who were untouchables and shit, and hearing about hearing the stories of rumbles and fights and yeah, <laughs> it's wild because like those are like my first memories, you know, like when you're like I guess nine, eight or nine, you know, when you're like first aware of kind of the world around you, yeah, and, like untouchables panic that swept Toronto where it was on the cover of like every newspaper or they're like running, you know, city pulse news stories about it. I remember city pulse news series searching for the untouchables. And like, my mom was like, if I ever find out that you're hanging around the Eaton center, I'm nine years old, right? Like I would be going down and hanging over the Eaton center by myself at this point. But it was like, uh, it was like satanic panic, but for, uh, <laughs> you know, gangs in Toronto. It's so weird because, like, my memories, like, like I said, I didn't have a TV. Newspapers weren't read in my house. Like, so I would, like, all that kind of stuff never affected me growing up until I was old enough for my friends to be telling me about stuff. So, yeah. 
So like that part of it, never, I didn't know anything about. I just, so it wasn't until like later that I knew that these guys that I had met who were untouchables were like part of something that was a bigger, scarier thing. You know what I mean? Like I wasn't getting the the, the City Pulse specials and stuff. They were just guys. They were just guys in the neighborhood who were like, "Yeah, we're gonna go fuck up some skinheads." Well, that's the thing. That's the thing about the Untouchables, right? Like, it was a response to the the skinhead problem in Toronto. Yeah, which is it's something that I didn't learn about. Uh, I guess so much later. I think maybe even talking to you that I first heard about that, and then kind of researched it a little bit more after. Yeah, the kind of the waves, because there were like there were like a couple waves where it would be like. You know, it's like something like the Untouchables would come around and kind of beat them out of downtown, mm-hmm. and then there was like a second wave, another wave after that. And when I was in high school, and that's when, in like, uh, it was the uh, anti-racist action, yeah. fighting skinheads, and uh, that that was actually the scarier time for me because I was older and I was in high school, and I was, you know, I was going to shows and I was being out late and waiting for streetcars on empty corners late at night. And, you know, though that's when it was more scary for me. You know, I did a lot of uh, uh, escaping quietly while shit went down, <laughs> I remember. You know, like just learning, I had to learn to trust my gut really early on to be like, I guess it's time to walk away kind of things. Cause there was a, I managed to miss a lot of really bad, a lot of the really bad shit that happened by like you know minutes <laughs> yeah well it's like it, like you're saying toronto was a big city and was like becoming a bigger city at that point so there was like a lot more uh i don't know maybe maybe it wasn't but it just feels like at that time like it was uh you know like uh like you're saying like having to watch on the way home on the on the streetcar because there's like no way that someone's not going to get jumped and rolled yeah uh, waiting for a streetcar like, and learn, you know, learning how to talk your way out of a situation, yeah. or like, you know, like I remember uh, I spent a lot of time like uh, in the West End, like kind of like more like St. Clair area, and uh, yeah, like there was you know there as soon as you're out of your neighborhood in Toronto, you were open to neighborhood gangs. You know, every gang yeah. like, Toronto, I think like it was such a neighborhood like centric city. Mm-hmm. And like your like whatever five or six block area would be a safe zone, and outside of that, <laughs> yeah, like it, it's it's Somebody, funny because like Toronto likes to you know Toronto likes it's like it's a person, but like the you know people from Toronto like to like you know point to the fact that it is you know Toronto the good or or you know it has that reputation and stuff, but the reality is there were like tons of neighborhood gangs, you know, like I am even you know I'm I'm there probably still are, but like yeah, like it is definitely. A huge part of Toronto life is just neighborhood crews and gangs. So, like, I spent I, I spent a number of years like on Bloor Dufferin area, mm-hmm. and uh, and this is like still when I was really young, like you know, uh, still probably under ten, and uh, and you know our neighborhood, our like four or five block area had a gang, probably guys in their like later teens. And they they had huge fights in the schoolyard every you know, every so often. Another gang from another neighborhood would show up, and they'd straight up like out of a movie, Rumble, like Rumble, yeah. Two yeah. groups of guys and fucking bats and chains would come out, and they'd fucking fuck each other up until the police came. Well, the yeah. weird thing is that that trickled down to my age group too. 
So all of us like preteens, like in our neighborhood, there was a group of us and in the next neighborhood over the, the, the gang was, they were all kids who rode skateboards and we rode bicycles. <laughs> yeah. We were like the disciples of the neighborhood gang kind of thing. Yeah. So we would fight the kids from the next neighborhood over all the time. And I, I remember <laughs> specifically it was uh, kryptonite locks against fucking trucks. Oh my, that's a vicious fight. Yeah, and like this is again, these are kids. But we were watching the older guys of the neighborhood. It was like a neighborhood pride thing. I mean, there was a there was a a pool hall and video games. I had video games in the back that was over the borderline to the next where the next kids territory. And we couldn't go to that shop unless we went in force, you know, Yeah. get the whole crew together to go take over the pool hall for a few hours so that they had, they had afterburner. <laughs> so we'd get it, we'd get it together to go like a block into the next territory to go play afterburner. Um, and also I have been now in some pretty hairy situations in my life. Nothing compares to being like a teenager and walking into a Toronto pool hall for the first time and like getting hustled by like a 30 year old pool hustler. Someone's trying to sell you drugs. Like it was really like a, like forget, forget your kids going to, to rough concerts, keep them out of the pool halls. 100%. First places, first place I was ever offered drugs. First place I was ever propositioned sex. Yeah. Definitely in, in pool halls. In pool halls. I don't do they still like exist? The arcades were really bad too, man. Like Yeah. I still have a I still have fear every time I'm in an arcade that my mom's gonna catch me. Because <laughs> it was like the rule. Don't don't go to the center. don't go to any Young Street arcades. If I see you in one of those Young Street arcades, there's a law now that you can't have I think it's more than five video games in an establishment in Toronto unless you serve food because they made those arcades illegal eventually crazy that's so wild but like i I mean it makes total sense yeah they (laughs) were pretty sketchy they were sketchy places definitely tim did you have uh any sort of like you know sketchy kind of like hangouts when you were a kid or any places that you were told to avoid (laughs) no it's it was only when i ever like put myself in in the situation usually all the time so it was (laughs) kind of it was always like uh if I'd go, actually, if I'd go to Toronto or Hamilton on my own, that'd be the only time that it would really be like that. I got older, like, you know, and then I really started, I didn't really start exploring things. So I was like, maybe definitely out of high school. So probably around 19. Mm-hmm. That's when I, you know, I, I had to go, I went and lived in St. Catharines for a year. And I met a lot of my, like, the people I work with today, for as far as like rap music goes, like a lot of my first collaborators are there um but yeah there's there's places there too like the the um the arcades and stuff where i used to go to like in brantford were very threatening no. they, 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 were, they were really good also to note my mom was like uh she was young when she had me so she was like into arcades when i was born so oh, really <laughs> yeah so i would be like a baby going to the arcades that's awesome <laughs> yeah yeah so no wonder you love video games yeah, like me, like uh, like when the Nintendo first dropped, my mom and dad bought one because they were into it. Yeah, and so I was playing their consoles. It wasn't mine, you know what I mean. So 
and we we don't play video games anymore me and my father but me and my father was we're big like nhl fans and we just played nhl together yeah it, it's wild like you we talk about this a lot because you're you're the one who kind of you know well both of you do but but especially you tim are like the one who hips me to like the video game culture stuff that i do not understand that my kids are super into but like like video games outsell movies and and music now like this is truly the cultural expression i don't know not even expression but it's more like the cultural sort of like gathering point of young people now like we've, we've joked about this my kids told me straight up that music was for old people <laughs> i'm still i'm still working on that one man <laughs> like, so am I. I wake up in the middle of the night music's for old well and i was talking to another parent today at the (laughs) kindergarten graduation and they were talking about a older child that they they have and that their older child is like a punk like looks like a punk dresses like a punk but only listens to the music that plays on the video games like that's the only exposure to music is video game music like it's just an aesthetic and then it's all video games and i'm sure there's like punk aspects of the video games that they're into or something kind yeah. of like out of the the sort of mainstream about the video games they like but it's just yeah like a completely new cultural expression that i guess maybe you know like tim you grew up with it so maybe you are, are more in tune with it and bear you're just more in tune with it than myself but i'm like completely out to lunch on what's happened I feel, I feel like a thousand when this stuff comes up in conversation. It's like Bitcoin or something. Well, well, the thing is, is that um, Bear is actually like he he knows a lot about video games that I don't know about, and he'll. We seem to fill each other's gaps on certain things, and we like we play different games. Very rarely will we'll find a game that we actually both like. And yeah. we're playing one right now called Chivalry too, <laughs> and it's freaking awesome. You like come, go around his knights and and uh, battle on a battlefield and like first person slash chop people's heads off and like very medieval. Very it's very violent, extremely. But oh. it's like, but it's in like in a goofy way. Super okay. goofy. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I, I want to bring it to this. A lot of the musical inspiration that I have, a portion of that is from video games. Mm-hmm. Like I've, I have like, like Mega Man Two, um, Doctor Wily's boss level. Like that, the, the beginning. That's that song is just incredible. Or the Contra theme. Yeah, the Contra. Or like, like all of these things. Like even Donkey Kong. I love the sounds of Donkey Kong and or Pac Man. Like it's just like these things are so brilliantly written. And it's like, uh, and in cartoons too, like around that time, like a lot of cartoon themes were like really well written as well, mm-hmm. like like Ducktales or, or a bunch of other crazy freaking uh, shows. But yeah, with the video game stuff, like that's, I write melodies sometimes to well, video games. There's one I learned the other day that's like written by the guy who did. Uh the guy who did like big bang theory and uh all those types of shows wrote like the theme to like gi joe or transformers or like one of the big 80s cartoons like he actually wrote the theme for but yeah they had killer songs it's also you know danny elfman was on the podcast and i was like talking about how he's like one of the most influential artists ever because you think about the simpsons theme you think about the batman theme but like what about the guy who wrote the mario music like that dude has influenced people everywhere 
Oh, for sure. Like he's, he's a legend. We we uh, we're doing some soundtrack work right now, and when we started. Our, um, we had a session where we brought a bunch of music together. You know, we always do that at the beginning of our sessions, right? To mm-hmm. play each other music and just get into the session by, you know, listening to new stuff or exposing each other to new stuff. And so I brought a whole bunch of soundtracks over for us to listen to. And in amongst that were a couple soundtracks from video games uh, that I have on vinyl. And like sitting there and listening to, I think it was Contra, right? That was the first one that we went through. Yeah, we listened from start to finish. Yeah, and just actually sitting down and listening to just the music was—I don't know—it was it was a tra- it was a transformative experience. Yeah, because you know you hear it and the and you hear it repetitively in the background of games all the time, but to actually just stop the the panic of gameplay and the and and the focus of gameplay and just just sit down and listen to the music was like i don't know it was really uh i don't know, it's not, I don't know what the words to say because it wasn't eye-opening it was something that we know but it was yeah experiencing yeah. something that you know as an adult now and, and in a really serious manner and having that influence the work we were about to do yeah and also like how we experienced it it was on vinyl like you know like as people who consume you know music and audio we will, I think between the three of us, we agree that if you hear it on vinyl, it's, it's kind different. of like, it hits different on vinyl. It, yeah. it, it, it definitely sets the mood. So to be able to hear those sounds, first of all, those sounds coming from a record is insane. That should like, <laughs> that's something that I would have never thought when the song came out like back in the day. So well, what was, about like those shows that they, you know, where they have a symphony perform the entire soundtrack to like final fantasy or something like, yeah, when you recontextualize it, you realize like how much work and how much thought has gone into like you think about, you know, really what's what's the difference when that Mario music changes? Like why do you feel the you know, why does the dungeon feel so different? Like obviously the color scheme changes, but it's really that music that that's really what, you know, sets that tone for that stuff and I don't know, I think with a lot of stuff with video games, I, I think just consuming them I didn't really appreciate like others all the art and design that goes into it beforehand all the programming obviously but it is truly uh it's it's truly humbling to realize that you know in my child's life you know super mario is far more important than i will ever be (laughs) they don't even play super mario i sound so old saying that (laughs) minecraft it's just minecraft that mario tune that you're talking about they um it did so well that they got up they hired a vocalist and they actually made a song that was like a top hit in Japan. <laughs> About that song. I, I've never heard it, but I know that it exists. That's awesome. I can see that. I definitely in a in from the country that brought you an entire mini <laughs> subgenre of wrestling related records. Yeah. You know, you could definitely <laughs> see like a vocalized video game soundtrack coming out at some point. For too. sure. Uh well, how did you guys actually first meet? I know you probably have talked about this like a trillion times. Um, <laughs> I, I can't remember the exact year, um, but it was like uh, Tribe had started just very new. And uh, I was asked to play a show with the rapper that I grew up with in St. Catharines, who I collaborated with named Sezi. So it was me and Sezi and also this um, Ganawage woman named Lakota Jones. Um, she won 
like the best hip hop, native hip hop album at the time. And we were celebrating by doing this performance with a live band. So I had like a horn ensemble and, and uh, it was really cool. And then, so we were playing the show and the guy that put on the show got Bear to come out and DJ. So it was late 2010, maybe 2011. It was the dead of winter though. Cause I drove down from Ottawa in a snowstorm and the tiniest car I've ever been in. <laughs> it was absolutely terrifying the entire way down because the driver talked to me like making eye contact quite a bit. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we came down uh, to play that, that gig and um, yeah, I mean, we met each other, I guess, after you played, you played earlier on in the night. Yeah. And then we got to hang out after, because uh, I didn't, we didn't play until the very end of the night. Yeah. Uh, our set actually got cut because there was a ensemble of rappers who wouldn't stop. And that is not the first time or the last time <laughs> that my set has been interrupted by a gaggle of rappers not stopping. <laughs> You can't stop the cipher once it's going, Bear. Uh, actually, it was a cipher to Indian Car. Oh my gosh, I yeah. remember this. It was like it was Indian Car because like uh, who was it? Like Joey Styles, I think, had done a cover of Indian Car at the time, mm -hmm. and they just kept on calling like every rapper in the building up on stage. <laughs> we'll I this. love that feeling though when you're like when you know you have to play and you know your set's getting cut shorter and shorter. For me, that's like the best feeling because it means I don't have to yell as much. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> but yeah, at some point we got to say, "Hey, what's up? How's it going?" And then uh, they had a merch table. They brought some shirts up. I bought I bought a shirt, and uh, it's like their old design. Like uh, they they each had like a at the time tribe had each each of their own sheet t shirt. Yeah. So I just bought I bought one, and then years later, when we were hanging out at South by Southwest on about 2014, I wore it. And then I showed up, I showed up like hanging, I like, showed up to bear and be like, Hey, what's up? And then I'm like wearing the shirt. And they're like, what the, f you know, like, <laughs> how do you have that shirt? <laughs> yeah. I still got it somewhere. It's in like a storage probably now, but it's like one of 50, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, Keep it. That, that, that is definitely a collector's item. I got to, I got to turn it into a vest punk vest maybe. Yeah. <laughs> The funny thing was, though, is like short, not too long after that, Tim moved to Winnipeg. Mm -hmm. So, and then that was like, we had started playing Winnipeg and we we're playing Winnipeg quite a bit. So it was like this shift where we had met Tim briefly in, in uh, Brantford or Hamilton? Hamilton. Hamilton. Yeah. Uh, uh, but then really quickly, he became a Winnipeg friend. Because <laughs> that's, where, that's, where that's where we got to know him. That's, that's where we got to spend a bunch of time with him. And again, the first time we ever worked in the studio together was in Winnipeg. And uh, I mean, even the, when when Tim joined, we had to fly him out from Winnipeg to come and work in Ottawa. But yeah, so it was this really funny thing. Whereas, like, I knew Tim was from Six Nations, I and mean, we had met in the area, but very quickly became yeah a Winnipeg buddy. Yeah, I, I just like I don't know two people that kind of like go together as well as you two do. You know, like just like your interests are just so 
aligned and you're kind of like your vibe and your energy. I know you guys probably feel differently and I'm like putting this on you, but like, I just like, I don't, I don't know. Like it just feels like it's faded that you guys would wind up working together. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. There, there was a real feeling. There was a real connection. Like from that first time we met each other, it was just, you know, it was really easy to get along, I think. Uh, but then as soon as we, as soon as we got in the studio together for the first time, it was just very apparent that I was like, okay, I need to work with this guy because he's got a way of working and a way about him that uh, that I that I admired, but that also I was like, this is this will work. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? I think we're both uh, super dedicated to what we do and putting all of our energy into what we do, and that's you know that's really important in a partnership, uh, as well as having like yeah, we do have really similar interests. What I love about it is that we we enjoy different parts of those shared interests for the most part. And we, we, we like, we, we, and we enjoy them in our own ways. So although that's, you know, you know, video games and wrestling and music and, you know, these, these kind of main things that we're into, we play very different games. We're into very different uh, uh, sections of the music that we both like, you know, and so it, it just, it makes a partnership so awesome and so strong when when it's like that you know it's like it's like we have a really wide spread to our to our interests together the best thing about it is like i i fan his flame like i'm i support what he does and i encourage it you know so it's like uh i'll take things that he likes and i'll be like i'll listen to him and then I'll take it in and chances are I'll, I'll probably like it and I'll probably keep going. And it just, there's an exchange and it's always been an exchange, whether it's music, whether it's tech, whether it's like uh, politics or even like um, right down bare bones morals. Like, you know, we, 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 we value each other's opinions and, um, and yeah, it just, it, we kind of are morphing into one entity. I feel like, <laughs> like there's times when it just feels like it's just we don't even have to say anything to each other anymore. And it's not like it's getting there. It's getting to that kind of point. Well, and at the same time, the conversations that we have are super important. You know, and we yeah. have conversations with each other. Like, guaranteed, if there's things that we're talking about in interviews and and whatever. Um, it might sound like we're just coming to these ideas a lot of the time, but but 99% of the time, they're things that we've spent hours and hours talking about together. Yeah. A studio session with us might be three hours of talking and like two hours of doing something, you know, like that's, that's, that's pretty much what it is. This is a, it, it, it's a, it's, it's, it's a very complex, um, thing that we have, but it feels so natural for us. I think that other people would, would be jarred by it, by how it, how it works. But we've we've somehow found a groove and are very comfortable in this kind of routine that we have. Yeah, I don't think uh, I don't think people realize, and I only realize because I've been you know in the studio with you guys and I've been around you guys. But like, how much thought goes into hallucination? Like, just how much like you guys think about things and how much planning and just kind of like, you know, it's, 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 it's inspiring to watch as like a, someone that creates stuff, like just how much work goes into every project you guys do. 
you know, like, and, and I've watched it like firsthand seeing it happen. And like, it's, it's not always like that with groups. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's really great to be able to like find league leagues of artists that we have similar interests at least, and we can build a connection with and then share these experiences with each other. Cause it just makes the experience so much better and usually makes the art way much, way, uh, way better. We've been really huge into collaboration and like having friends over when we work or, all of this stuff where it's, it's very natural and not like, we're not, tr we are trying very hard. I don't want to put that in there, but like, but it's also like the pressure that we put on ourselves is really what it is. We're not trying to be anything. This is something that's very, like we support each other and we trust each other. So we just make whatever comes and we just think that that's, and then we, we talk about it. <laughs> we talk about these things a lot, whether it be a song or an idea or whatever. And before you know it, like we have a narrative and that's a lot where Bear comes in and like just constructing the idea of what it is, of what we're doing. And that makes it super purposeful. I often wonder like how many other groups out there operate the way that we do, where it's like, you know, like Tim is making the music. Tim is, he's the one who can write beats and can write a melody and do those sort of things. And I work on the conceptual part of things for the most part, mm -hmm. but those things, we don't split those jobs. Like we kind of, those are our responsibilities within the group, but we don't split the, the, the jobs up in the sense that Tim goes off and makes music and I go off and, and write things, you know, we do it in the same space at the same time. I sit with Tim in the, in the studio and, you know, I give my ideas and things here and there, but like, for the most part, it's just me listening to what he's doing and I sitting on my phone and writing things down that come to come to mind as it, as we go through. Yeah. You know? And like, that's literally what it looks like when we're in the studio half the time. And yeah. a lot of it is, is this like collection of knowledge and, and, and conversations that we have prior that all come into the final product of what it is that what we're doing. Because chances are, we find our answers in the things that we're looking for if we look back in, into our what we talked about or what we experienced. I think it's also just the community you guys have set up around the band. Like, I mean, like the internal kind of camp with like people who are coming from outside or, you know, it's always, it's always like a, you know, and I mean, more recent years when I've been spending time with you guys in the studio, it's always such a like a a really kind of amazing vibe in the studio. Like, I, I really uh, I don't know, like I don't find a lot of um, I don't know, like a lot of studio vibes as, as welcoming and as collaborative. Like I've never worked with you guys in the studio, but just watching you work with other people in the studio, too. Like it feels like, you know, it, it's it's not just a, a group in what's being presented outwardly to people like the 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 concept of the group goes internally too in the way you structure it it seems but definitely and when i talk about the first time that i got in the studio with tim and saw something in the in what he was doing it was exactly that it was his ability to collaborate and his ability and and want to get the best from people mm-hmm and it, like Tim just has this really amazing ability to work with artists in the studio. Uh, I mean, be it other producers or vocalists or MCs, like whoever, like I, I've watched him change a recording session 
with with a sentence. Yeah. Do you think that's Tim because you were an educator and you're used to dealing with children? (laughs) (laughs) That was really. I mean, I mean, you know, like I've, I've, it's not, it's not a bad, not a bad. uh, Yeah, I I would say that plays a part. (laughs) Um, you know, generally when people come work with work with even with me in the past or even now, uh, a lot of people know what they're getting into. Cause like I'm very open with it and try to make everything comfortable and, and all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, no, it's, it's uh, I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to, trying to find the words that would be, what would be the reason why that it's like that, but I've just accumulated knowledge. I've also like, I'm a big shut up and listen and don't talk kind of person. <laughs> so it's like growing up, that's how I was. So whether it be elders or language speakers or God wouldn't say anything, I would just take in, take in, take in. And, uh, but that led to me being like, oh, you're a producer that know that's does really good stuff. I want to learn from you. So like, I'm just going to sit here and watch you work if that's okay, kind of thing. And I've had like situations like that growing up right up until like, uh, um, one of my first crazy sessions was going to Spicewood, Texas, to work with uh, Gordy Johnson at Willie Nelson's studio and Pender and, and like having that crazy experience, but also like being humbled by like, uh, so I was working on this project. This is, the, this is the reason why I was there. I was working on this, uh, there's a native band um, from my res. They were called Jesus Murphy. And uh, they asked me to co-produce this record because I could sample and they wanted to do some different stuff in it. So I was down and that's kind of where my role was. So we started recording demos and I did it when Cool Edit and just kind of like did it in his garage and with a cheap microphone and just whatever I, the knowledge that I had at the time. So when it came down to recording the album in this proper studio with Gordy from Big Sugar, that's where the band he was from at the time, Gordy Johnson. And hell of a uh, guitarist, one of the greatest guitarists. Yeah, man. And uh, he, uh, he said, like, we tried re-record, we tried recording that song like a bunch of times. We're gonna use, can you bounce me down the files from your session? We're gonna use that one. And I was just like, Are you kidding me? Like, we're like in a like a million dollar studio, and it was the vibe that I I captured, and he really like admired that. And I always took anything, demo, whatever, serious ever since then, I was just like, I just never knew. I thank goodness I had the files and everything was good because I was doing things in a very hack job way at the time. Mm. I'm not professional at all. But he taught me a lot of stuff about producing, about trying to get the best take. And that's when I learned about the best take. He's like, you got the best take. You were there to capture the moment. Like you, you, whatever you did, to make him record that that way, that can't be redone. You got it. So that's what you need to do producing going forward. Keep doing that. So I just kind of kept it up. Every time I'm in the studio, that's just how I think all the time now. Now it's weird because I want to work with you really bad and now you know my secret. So (laughs) I'm going to figure out another angle. (laughs) <laughs> you know me well enough to know that I can't play music at all. So, uh, you know, I, I need all the help I can get in the studio. So no secrets will be uh, wasted on me. I promise. Right. <laughs> I promise. Do you guys, do you guys view it now as this being like, like the, like an evolution to get where you are? Like, this is like, 
this is or do you view this as being like a new a new starting point like do you think this is like kind of like you know this new record as being something completely new or is this has it evolved to this oh yeah it's evolution definitely you know like uh the evolution into be becoming the hallucination right now it's not an ending of a tribe called red you know we're just we're at it we're at a different point with it right now it's become it's become something else but uh but tribe is still there <laughs> you know what i mean like it's like it's definitely not a, a new start or a new beginning it's a it's a new cycle you know and like we're really and when you think about things in terms of cycles there, there's no there's no endings really you know it's, it's just it's just new beginnings but uh but those those foundations to to you know who we are as a group are still the same it's just we came to a time when we had to refocus who we are as a group <clears throat> and uh and also, you know, I think a huge, I mean, a huge part of the evolution, you know, has been Tim and I's relationship. Like we, we have, you know, we were always, um, we always worked really well together, but now we've spent a lot of time concentrating on our relationship together, how we work together, uh, how, you know, we, we're, we're closer friends now than we ever have been. But that's again because we put some real effort into into the taking care of each other and and getting to know each other on a more deep level. Like like everything everything is always layers with us, you know. And I think we we peeled back a lot of layers on who Tim and Bear are together. And also, I just like to say, probably the best way I could put it is like it's a great way to acknowledge like what we are right now. Like it deserves that acknowledgement that this is that this is this is the phase that we're in. This isn't like a publicity stunt. This is like dude, we're not we're not being, you know, like branding. Yeah, this is not like a industry kind of thing. This is like everything we do is with purpose. And uh yeah, this feels like we it, we deserve this. We deserve it to it, it the the thing the work that we put in together, it deserves this kind of acknowledgement that this is what's happening going forward. But like you said, like we're we're still tribe. Like this is like the like the vibes are still the same. We've we've we're definitely carrying on that torch and we're gonna keep it going forward, like keep it going bright. But uh yeah, for me it's all about acknowledging our relationship and where it has gone and the work that we put in and where we wanna go and inviting other people to come along for the ride because it is going to be a ride for mm -hmm. sure. Cause we I feel like we have wings now, you know, like I feel like the 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 ceiling that we set on ourselves, it was it was there. And now that we were kind of doing this new thing, it kind of feels limitless. We we can really dream big with what we want to do with this. And um it's very exciting. It it made it exciting for us again. And it made it like so hopeful and like um kind of curious to see where it goes at the same time, because we don't know every every experience that we have going forward it's always a shock or it's always it's not like we ne we never know what's going to happen we're just putting this energy out there and whatever comes to us comes to us kind of thing as a fan of the group i'm really glad you guys did do this to kind of make that acknowledgement because i do feel looking at, you know from 
from like a, a privileged outside perspective but like because i'm not able to be, hang around with you guys but like it does feel like it is like a like a start of a new chapter for the for the group and i do think like you, like fucked up hasn't been in the same room as a whole band in at least two years and i don't think we're going to be in the same room together as a whole band for at least another year um you guys are always together always working on this thing and that's the thing that's like I think it's beautiful to kind of like watch happen and to kind of like see you guys do stuff. Like I'm watching a, 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 like a, a TV show. You do the soundtrack with my family or I'm listening to your new record. Like, you know, I just, it just, it just feels like the, I know what went into this because I know how much time you guys spend together. Like you guys work on this thing all the time. And like, you know, on not just on the musical level, but like also the conceptual level, like, and have these discussions. Like I've been, privy to some of these discussions and like you've been part of those discussions i'm lucky to be part of a couple of them too and it's like yeah like that's why you guys are my favorite group because i just feel like i, I love you as people but also i just respect the shit out of what you do and what you carry too because like you know and I, I don't you don't have to talk about this or go into it but like you guys carry stuff that other groups don't have to worry about and like and i've seen like being with you tim uh filming the wrestlers being in different communities and seeing how people reacted to you and how important what you do is like, it is, it's something that a lot of groups don't have to worry about and like, and it doesn't have to affect their decisions. And you know, I like, I, and, and you don't have to address that. I just, that's something I've always wanted to tell you guys. Well, you know, it's something I've always wanted to tell you that impressed me so much about you as a person was being in a situation where somebody did something, you know, weird or said something you know uh off color about indigenous people and you 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 took it on yourself to worry about how i felt in that situation and it was really early on in us spending time together and you being like are you okay man like that was weird like we can go if you want and like most other non-indigenous people in that situation wouldn't have worried so much about how their friend might have felt from some passing comment that got said in a, in a cafe are you kidding that shit still mortifies me that that dude said that i still think about that it still gives me like douche chills right but, day that, but that, like, that, that what that dude said had nothing to do with you no i know i know but just like but that, but that you but it meant a lot to me that you cared about it i appreciate that well and i i thank you you know that was like holy shit this is a you know, this is a real, this is a real human. <laughs> yeah, man. The, the biggest thing about you is that, you know, I, it's awesome that you just give a shit. Yeah. And like, to be honest, we, we, we've been around this industry for a very long time and me, we all know the different bands and different people, but like, it's, it's very hard to find people like that. And that's why we keep you close. Yeah. I appreciate that. And I, and I you know, your family, as I said, off the top, you know, and I feel like, that's the thing about being in music for an extended period of time is that eventually you, you, you figure it out and you realize who, who's worth the time and who's, who your friends are and who's worth hanging out with. And I just feel really lucky that I've got, you know, you guys in my life and it, and it means a yeah. lot that I'm able to like talk to you guys and bounce ideas off you guys and send you rap songs that i would never show anyone else i might edit that out i'm gonna edit that out the, 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 the level of love in the room when we're with you has changed like our relationship together like all those changes i'm talking about 
on how we've become closer and we take better care of each other and all of that. That's inspired by hanging out with you. Mm-hmm. Oh man, you're going to make me cry on my fucking podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's never happened before (laughs) unless i'm talking in an intro about you know my mom passing away or something like this is uh i appreciate that means a lot it really does mean a lot and like yeah you guys got to pack up because you got to get on the road so i won't keep you forever but we could talk forever and and anytime you guys want to come back on and and chat about music or whatever you want to chat about please know you know i'd love to have you guys and this has taken far too long to happen the first time yeah, yeah. No, I mean, this is, we could do this all day. I mean, we, we do it do, all day. We, we do did this, this last day. night. <laughs> Tim, you went to bed and Bear and I still talk for another hour last night. <laughs> Look, the next, I know, I know the perfect time to come back when, when we finally do this collaboration together. That'd be amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Um, but before you go, Bear, we got to talk about one of the greatest musical connections of all time which is the fact that you grew up with one of my favorite hardcore guitarists ever, Joel Left for Dead Fisher, or Joel Skuji Fisher, or Joel Rammer Fisher, but Joel <laughs> Fisher and you grew up. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, how you met Joel? Yeah, I met Joel on the first day of grade two. At... <laughs> um, yeah, he was... Uh this off the wall kid who again, yeah, we clicked right away, but I think it was our parents that actually brought us together because um, we were both on special diets as kids. Like really? Like, yeah. 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 <laughs> our parents were, were trying to deal with, uh, with us without like, you know, uh, um, pharmaceutical drugs and such. And so we were on special, special diets and our mothers got talking because we were on special diets and, <laughs> That's how sleepovers started. And yeah, he was like my closest friend from grade two to grade six. And then when junior high happened, I got sent to, I was in a learning disabled program. So I got sent to a different school mm-hmm. and, uh, and there was, so we didn't know each other from through junior high. And then we came back together uh, the summer before grade nine. And, uh, and yeah, we're inseparable for years after that um you know like <laughs> i i broke his i broke his arm in grade three <laughs> i put I, I i pushed him down a snow hill before he was ready to go and when we got together in high school i re- reminded him of that he had completely forgotten that i was the one who broke his arm <laughs> um but yeah like he's like okay so it was this really weird thing when we were like you know 15 years old there i was this like six foot probably six foot two at the time, dreadlocked, deadhead, tie-dye wearing guy. And Joel was this like full on green mohawk, 20 hole doc bomber wearing punk kid. Yeah. But we we're the best friends and like, you know, went everywhere together. Um, and so, yeah, he's the first one who really got me into punk music. You know, we were like definitely trading music at the time. And the uh, the thing that he played me that like, you know, because I remember like uh, not liking his music. I was listening to, like I said, like a lot of Grateful Dead and shit like that. And I was like, Joel was into this really aggressive music all the time. And the thing that he finally got me with is he was like, you got to listen to these guys, MDC. And uh, and played me, um, uh, John Wayne was a Nazi. Yeah. 
And that was like, oh, this is what your music's your music's talking about stuff like this. It's yeah. funny too, like that record when Chris Hanna was on for Propaganda, he said the same thing. He didn't like punk until he heard that record. And at first he hated it and then went home and it just changed it changed his head afterwards. Like they're like one of those bands that when you hear it, it it'll click. Yeah. Um, that, it was that that and Dead Kennedys were the things that like definitely opened up my 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 eyes. Uh, fun fun fact about Joel: his very first tattoo was uh, was an MDC tattoo. <laughs> and fun fact about you and me, Bear: you were there the night that Jello by Afra came on the podcast for the first time. Yes, that was a bucket list night. We we went we went record shopping with Jello. We went record shopping with Jello by Afra. <laughs> like that is that is i will never forget that night like that <laughs> that was a fun weird night i called i remember calling you and being like hey uh do you want to come meet me at grasshopper records i'm with jello biafra and then we left jello in the record store and you and me uh went and had without him yeah. <laughs> jello was gonna spend all night in there we had to go we yeah. had other stuff to do oh man and was just pulling the most bizarre records too i remember he had like he was explaining to me a psych folk record and the guy had built all the instruments he played on it and he he is one of those people that you know like when you just get around someone who just has dedicated their whole life to acquiring this knowledge that very few people care about as soon as you find a willing receptacle you just have to dump it all in. And I speak from the from being one of these people too. We, we are those people. We are it's, these people. It's just like Jello is like is like meeting an elder of our community. Yes, exactly. Jello, Jello is our future. That's where we will go. <laughs> uh well, I I can't stress enough. This has been a thrill and I love you guys so deeply. And anytime you want to come back here, please do. Yeah, man. I can't wait till we do it again, which we'll probably be us talking tomorrow but yeah like <laughs> off the record again <laughs> yeah probably yeah man i uh, love you buddy thank you tim and thank you bear for coming on the show and once again check out one more saturday night it's amazing i love these guys so much thank you guys all right N coming up next on the show i think i want to take like a a, a tiny break and there's a bunch of stuff that's being recorded, a bunch of stuff that's got to be figured out. But you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a little bit of uh, like maybe a, a week off. Let's call it a like a couple uh, like a week off. Yeah. So like two shows. Go back and listen. We got so many shows in that archive. So you can go back, check out some of the past 350 plus episodes of this thing to hold you off because I'm sure you haven't heard all of them. And I will be back in a week with some huge episodes, some unbelievably awesome episodes. Uh, uh, but that's it for the show. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of Indigenous people matter. We need to protect trans kids, and we need to help trans people protect themselves. And there needs to be a stop of hate and violence towards Asian people and people of different faiths. And Because this, this shit is not political. These aren't political issues. This is just basic human rights stuff. People just deserve the right to live and live free and, and be away from hate. So do what you can, inform yourself, get involved. There's lots of organizations that are doing a lot of amazing work right now. Uh, donate your time, donate your money, donate what you can, if you, if you can. Um, basically the long and the short of it is, is just 
smash fascism. You know, this, this shit cannot fly. And historically, it can't fly because it just gets worse. So, you know, get yourself informed. Uh, go out there and make your own culture because anyone can do this shit and it helps your menta- mentality. <laughs> it helps your mental health to go out there and, and make something. And it doesn't have to be like a... It doesn't even have to be something you show publicly. It doesn't have to be a podcast or a band. It could be. It could be. It could just be a drawing, you know, for yourself. Just, you know, try it. Try it. Also, maybe try meditation. I didn't believe in that shit and uh, it's kind of working for me a little bit. So maybe try it too. Who knows? I should be doing it more. I really do think I should be doing it more. Uh, sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't need that shit. It's just dead weight in an otherwise dead body. So uh, I guess in a dead body. So sign that card because it can give someone a new lease on life when you don't need them. Uh, and uh, I think that's, is that all I say normally? <laughs> I'm a little tired. I think that's it. Uh, Remember, stay safe. Uh, I love you, and I'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening.